I've organized the table and now I can't find anything. Uh, <laughs> That's what you get for organizing. Yeah, I should have just left it as a mess. Uh, well, let's see if I can actually remember our intro off the top of my head. That will be that will be fun. Uh, fun? Go for it. Okay. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason. I'm Laura. And welcome to Come Back a Star, a movie award um, whimsical farce feel good good time. Uh, it will warm your heart even as it leaves you full of plot holes. <laughs> we are watching and reviewing every Best Picture winner and nominee from 1927 onwards. And this week is number episode 042, I believe, A Lady for a Day. Woohoo! Our first Frank Capra flick. Yeah, and definitely not the last. Um, definitely not the last. And if you remember, uh, last season I told an anecdote about uh, Will Rogers hosting the Oscars, including Capra, but I misspoke. It was this for this movie where uh, Will Rogers uh, called out, you know, come and get it, Frank. And Capra got all excited and was racing to the stage before he realized dumb Will Rogers meant Frank Lloyd who directed <laughs> this year's winter cavalcade. So, uh, sorry, Capra, uh, but the, the day of the year was not years, but this was a very big hit apparently. Yeah. And we'll get into it. And it's really obvious why, um, for, for reasons we'll get into, um, specifically because of like, you know, the, the time and place we're talking about that being the, the great depression. <laughs> feel like it's the first example of a really well-made movie in the sound age like obviously we've seen well-made movies in the sound era before this but this seems like the most smoothly made so far if that makes sense oh you think so um explain how i mean you mean like there's just not so i guess like the transitions were smooth and things like that is that what you mean an energy there's an energy here with the actors, um, you know, that even though, like we alluded to in the beginning, there are plenty of plot holes in this little fantasy. There just seems to be something when I think of 30s movies, I really think of this kind of energy. Uh, yeah, the transitions too. just everything seems a little bit more smooth and more alive than a lot of the movies we've been seeing so far. I guess in a certain sense, it's less stagey and does I get I get what you're saying. It's hard to describe. Um, it's uh, it does feel more like a 1930s movie rather than more of a filmed play or something yeah, exactly. like that. It feels really opened up. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I get I get what you're saying. So uh, just to quickly review what we do here on this uh lovely lovely show what we're going to do is review the plot of this movie lady for a day and uh give our little two cents as we've already started and after we're done reviewing the whole plot of the movie we are going to go into rating the movie on different categories such as acting writing cinematography overall and then we're going to give the movie a chance for some bonus points in things like costumes and set its boldness, its legacy, its longevity, and any technical achievements that it has within it. Um, I am looking forward to, I get the feeling that this one's going to be a little bit all over the board with, uh, with points, um, okay. but, but generally towards the high. 
yeah. area. Yeah, I mean, really tell why Frank Capra became like the most popular director director during this era. He's really of his time. Yeah, I can see that. And this movie is definitely of its time. So uh, should I get into it here? Let's start off. To take it away. All right. So Frank Capra's 1933 Lady for a Day opens on the bustling streets of Depression era New York City, where the scrappy Apple Annie, played by Mae Robson, is hawking her apples along the street. And again, like we already start off with a Depression era uh, standby here with uh, the apple vendor on the street. Right. It's almost kind of Eliza Doolittle-ish, um, but except, you know, May May Robson as Apple Annie makes uh, Eliza Doolittle look like a, a lady from the start because, you know, I have to say they do a very good job of making Apple Annie look look quite scrap, uh, scruffy. Let's put it that way. Yeah, definitely uh, bedraggled, but um, but there's a dignity about her. She's not um, you like her from the very beginning. Oh, she's great when she yells at the palookas uh, getting in her way. Oh, now, yeah. One complaint later on is that we kind of lose Annie as a character. She becomes more of a, a symbol that the plot revolves mm-hmm. around. But she's, she's great. You can understand why a lot of people end up coming to her aid later on just from these early scenes. Right, right. And um, so speaking of Annie. Uh, she is a bedraggled old woman, as we've described, and is nevertheless, though, a, a beloved figure to her fellow struggling street sellers and and the uh, the homeless folks in the area. And she is also a favorite of the gangster Dave the Dude, played by Warren William, who firmly believes her apples give him a crucial stroke of luck when he makes bets. And uh, it's also kind of important. There, there are little important things that they that they leave out in all of this. Um, yeah. For for a second, there, I was like, wait, why does he, does she have like tips he needs for like the stock market or something? It's like, no, he has a superstition that her apples uh, give him luck, which is again, a, just a real Capra sort of like whimsical touch. Right. And the, the gangster Dave, the dude, um, his primary business, I guess is gambling. He, you don't see him doing that much gangstering. No, uh, so so you you're led to like him as as a good egg, even if he is, you know, even if he's gambling and things like that. It's the the most minor of vices that he's, he's involved in. Yeah, he's definitely in the guys and dolls school of gangsters. That uh, the crimes will not get into them. Uh, he's just this likable figure who wears snappy suits and has the gangster lingo. And that's as far as we need to go. There's also an interesting little contrast that's drawn between um, uh, the, the people on the street and Dave, the dude, they're all, they're all good peeps. And um, she also at the very beginning runs into a couple of uh, cops who also know her and like her. But the very first thing that they do is steal one of her apples. Oh, forgot about that that's right <laughs> no matter what era cops man <laughs> yeah so yeah. We're, we're already kind of set up to to like to like these underdogs that yeah, are around us Watson does a great job of uh just being a really likable sassy old lady and you've got you've always got to love those absolutely yeah she she's a great all the characters in this are are really great and they're also likable even down to um 
even down to the cops uh, that are kind of the only real foil exactly. in, in the situation. Um, even even they gain some some sympathy from just being flustered and stymied by these clever um, underdogs. Exactly. This is definitely the movie for the underdog. Of which there were many at the time in 1933 yeah. America. <laughs> it was something that appealed to a lot of people. Um, and, you know, you can really kind of date this because I think at this point, uh, Hoover was still in office because Annie talks about hearing him on the radio saying that, uh, you know, hope is just around the corner, which is, I guess, a famous dunderheaded thing Hoover used to say on the radio before FDR took over. So we're definitely kind of, I think, in the early grips of the Depression. And right. um, I think this movie kind of gives the lie that, that that the Depression was never talked about in movies. They just didn't, you know, dwell in despair over it, which makes sense. Yeah. Like, why would you need to talk about it and dwell in it when you're living it? When you're living it like no one wants to see a movie about the pandemic right now. And if so, they don't you know, we just have memes to make it funny. So it's just human nature. Yeah, I think so. So for years now, Annie has been sending and receiving letters at the upscale Hotel Marbury using her friend, the British doorman is go between. Her correspondence is with her beloved young daughter, Louise, played by Jean Parker, who was Beth in Little Women. And I guess she was just probably kind of uh, typecast at the time as the saintly kind of one dimensional character. Although Beth isn't one dimensional, but let's face it, in the movie, she kind of is. And uh, Louise uh, was sent by Annie to be raised in a Spanish convent when she was a baby, which, again, plot holes galore. I guess it's implied that Annie was once a society, a society gal who probably had some money. Um, and maybe she used that last money to send her to a convent in Spain of all places, but nothing is really spelled out about why she has to send a baby to a convent, but I guess she did. Yeah. There, there's no explanation as to the whyness of this situation. Um, you, you just, just roll with it is kind of like the, the constant, uh, response of this movie it's just kind of like don't 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 worry about it don't worry about it just keep going oh so annie adores this child she hasn't seen since she was a baby and is determined that louise never learned that her mother isn't in fact any longer a high society dame married to one e worthington manville who is a total fictional creation of annie's uh not really helping herself here by piling lie upon lie but you know it's pretty dreary the way her life is now so i could see her kind of creating this fantasy life for, as much for herself right. as for these which is just sad as hell to think about right however her doorman friend is fired for carrying her letters and annie frantically pressures the marbury staff and mailman to give her louise's latest letter and yeah again you just love annie in this scene she just does not give a crap she makes a scene in the hotel she uh she she's able to like be either like really upfront and in the guy's face and then kind of simpering when he says he'll get the police but she finally gets her letter after basically accosting the mailman and spilling his letters all over everywhere so again, Capra loves his slapstick and does slip it in here and does it pretty well. Yeah, I guess we should mention uh, in a moment. This is a fairly comic movie. It's um, it you know it, it seems very melodramatic and and everything like that, and it is. 
but it is, I think, uh, meant to be, you're supposed to have a good laugh with a lot of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think it's partly because the plot is so ridiculous. It would be hard to play this completely straight. Mm -hmm. So, and I mean, you know, I, Frank Capra's movies were once called Capricorn back in the day, just because it's always going to be a little heartfelt along with a little funny. And that does kind of equal corny. And does <laughs> here, I do, I do love the um, desk clerk's reaction when he first sees Annie. I can't even remember what he says, but it's like, it's like, oh, good Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, like reaction when he sees Annie. So like every Capra is so good with his, even his side characters, giving them a lot to do. Right. So Annie has Louise's letter and reads it as she walks back home. Uh, but however, the letter makes her first faint in shock. And, uh, you know, the, those kind hearted people of New York rush to her aid. Uh, with, you know, little movie magic there. <laughs> um, and then she lapses into a drunken stupor. Louise is engaged to the son of a Spanish count. And they are coming over by boat to make sure Annie is an upright citizen before his father consents to the match. Yeah. And no going into how she met this uh, son of a Spanish count as a as an orphan child in a Spanish convent. And um, yeah, Uh, again, uh, and we need to cover another little loose end that came up is that the doorman is fired for carrying her letters. And we never hear again from him. I mean, that's a bummer. And uh, so that happens. And, and then he disappears from the rest of the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate, but I think it's probably points to the count being pretty smart uh, in that he. Uh, he can probably tell like, huh, this orphan who was raised in a convent says her mom is super rich, has a lot of good connections. I smell an illegitimate baby who's been fed lies. So, you know, you, you probably could get the idea that the count is pretty worldly and, and poor Annie is right to be terrified. Absolutely. Okay. So, uh, Apple Annie is in a bit of a pickle right now. A uh, bit of a pickle. And so Annie is kind of hitting the gin again and uh, which we've kind of established in the movie is her, that's her vice. And mm-hmm. again, it's, um, it's identifiable. She doesn't hurt anyone. It's mainly just sad. So yeah. again, it, the movie's going to keep you on her side throughout. Absolutely. Um, and again, a lot of that comes down to Robson just really breaking your heart. So Dave, the dude, meanwhile, is impatient for one of Annie's apples before going through on a big deal. So I guess it's expanded from like good luck on bets to like good luck on business dealings. Uh, the the whole superstition behind the apples. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the the dude is is looking all over for her and uh he sends out like he has a couple of lackeys that he sends out looking for her. And uh, there's one main lackey that's kind of like the, the goofy doofus who, who can never find Annie despite looking mm-hmm. here and there. And uh, after a while, Annie's gang of friends from the street go to Dave, the dude with the news of uh, Annie's predicament and he and his henchmen, the cynical and ironically named happy McGuire played by Ned Sparks. 
and the slow-witted lug Shakespeare, uh, played by Nat Pendleton. And Shakespeare was the the guy that I was just mentioned. He's kind of a, a doofus. Yep, good old doofus. So ironically play, named yeah. a couple of chaps. Pretty ironically nicknamed. So uh, they all go down to her ramshackle little apartment to see her. And uh, the gangsters find her in a drunken distress, uh, pretending that she is a high society dame again. She then breaks down and confesses the whole story about her daughter to the dude. A very like heartbreaking scene that really kind of cuts through the sort of comedy and farce of it. Uh, because it's just a very realistic scene of a woman breaking down and just not having anything left. And it's it's almost kind of chilling. And I think it's it's a good like wake up call, not only for the dude, but for the audience, just about how happy things are for poor Apple Annie. Mm-hmm. Although the dude initially puts on an uncaring front and dismisses Shakespeare's idea of using the rich friend Rodney Kent's Marbury suite for Annie, he quickly changes his mind. It, you know, in perfect gangster fashion, he like, you know, calls Shakespeare an idiot for even suggesting it. And then next scene, we're in Kent's apartment. <laughs> Kent Barkley is out of town and the dude, con- dude convinces him by letter and his British butler, Hallowell Hobbs, in person to agree to their scheme. The dude then enlists the help of nightclub singer Missouri Martin, Glenda Farrell, who people will recognize from our Little Caesar episode, mm-hmm. who is infatuated with him, uh, brings over her hair and makeup people to transform Annie into a, a respectable high society dowager. They succeed, and the dude and his compatriots are impressed by her transformation. And unfortunately, I feel like with the transformation, we do this is where we kind of lose Annie as a character. Instead of being Apple Annie, uh, the kind of cantankerous but good-hearted, uh, sassy old lady. We get this just kind of like very almost kind of just delicate, saintly lady who everyone has to take care of, and that's kind of my complaint about where her character goes. Right, or or stops. Uh, <laughs> it really becomes the dude's picture after this. Uh, yeah, but I mean, there is also a nice supporting cast of people all coming together to support Apple Annie, and I it. Again, that was the feel good tone throughout the movie is, you know, down and out. Apple Annie finally gets a fair break with the help of these unlikely uh, compatriots and people who are very compassionate despite being gangsters and, you know, street vendors and things like that. Exactly. The working people teaming up together to uh, to. uh help Apple Annie become a high society dame for, for one last time for a week, not a day, but still. Yeah. It's not worth the title, but you get this, you get the gist. And it's also interesting that, uh, Rodney Kent, the, the character who owns the, the suite just never appears. Never seen. We're not sure why he, he supports this whole endeavor, but I guess it, it's, you know, they don't have to cast that person, then, I guess. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, after the dude and his compatriots are, you know, just stunned by this transformation of Apple Annie into this uh, genteel lady, they begin the, the business of finding a suitable Mr. E. Worthington Manville, and they settle on the loquacious middle-aged pool player named Judge. Henry D. Blake, 
played by Guy Kibbe. Uh, in the 30s. He's a great character actor. Yeah, and he shows up in 42nd Street. He does. Okay, yeah, I remember. I remember that when I was looking up this uh, cast. This cast, by the way, I think almost all of them have a movie that we'll cover later in the 30s. Oh, absolutely. I I can't remember if Ned Sparks is in 42nd Street, too. I think he is. But uh, yeah, they're both great. <laughs> yeah, fan, fantastic. And I, I love how uh, this Henry D. Blake character is just referred to as judge. And um, it took me a while to realize that he wasn't actually a judge. He, he was he was just a pool player. <laughs> <laughs> That people yeah, refer to as part. as judge. Oh, I guess that's his nickname. <laughs> and yeah, I I, I guess he kind of comes off as a uh, a highfalutin guy. So maybe they just kind of figured he were he was a judge. Um, oh yeah, I think he's well cast <laughs> in the scheme. And uh, I guess that might be the most. I think kind of the joke is that that's the the highfalutin person that most of these people would know would be a judge. They then go to meet Louise, her fiance, and his father at the dock. So the the count and his son are are in tow with uh, Louise, the the convent girl, being brought to uh, to New York from Spain. They're all coming over. Happy makes sure that the reporters stay away and even goes so far as to kidnap several of them, and later some society editors. Uh, yeah, and uh, pretty much. Oh, let me see. So some of them, there's one that they kind of focus on and he just kind of bustles them into a car and says like, yeah, go to Pier uh, 48. It's in the Bronx and just tells uh, Shakespeare to just drive them off somewhere in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yep, it's it's pretty funny. And again, you are sitting here like rooting for these people to uh, to engage in this kidnapping, because at this point you are as the audience full on on team Apple, Annie and Dave, the dude pulling this off. I mean, they can't turn back now. Yeah, they can't. Uh, Louise and Annie have a tearful reunion and she introduces her mother to her fiance, Carlos played by Barry Norton and his father, the formidable count Romero played by Walter Connolly. Blake introduces a bemused dude as Louise's uncle David, and she embraces him as well. So it's just too trusting. Like she has no questions for her mother whom she's never met. It's like, I'd be kind of indignant. Mom, you're loaded. Why haven't you ever had me come over? Uh, But uh, she's a she's a good egg, I guess, and doesn't question her elders. No, I I, I guess not. There's. Again, there, there's a lot of holes in this. Yeah, let's roll with it. That's the tagline for this episode and this movie. Roll with it. Um, yeah, there's no explanation as to why uh, why the dude didn't have some sort of role for himself planned out because he's right there making sure that the whole operation works out. But he didn't have a reason for him to be standing next to these two and engaging with them. So. It's kind of at the last moment that the judge comes up with this whole Uncle David uh, situation. Yeah, 
He was so focused on Annie, he forgot about himself. What a mensch this uh, this dude is. I just love that he's called the dude. Yeah, it's, it's uh, kind of a big Lebowski-ish uh, scheme, really. People just bumbling forward with no real uh, uh, followers. <laughs> it's very, I, all you need is the 60s soundtrack and uh, you have uh, the big Lebowski 30 style. Absolutely. Well, all seems to go well until Blake announces they will hold a reception for all their society friends to welcome the Count and his son. Because you get the sense that Blake is really getting into character and uh, is really enjoying the kind of pop of being this big somebody. Yeah, yeah. You can tell that he must have some sort of knowledge of how all of this works because he's really directing all of this, like how to act in high society stuff. And uh, and so he's the one who knows that, well, it would probably be expected that there would be a reception for these people um, since they're they're visiting. And this is going to be, you know, new relations with uh, with the venerable Manville family. So and one of them's account. So, you know, you you would figure that all the high society people would want to come and and meet this person. But uh, of course, yeah. That doesn't make me too happy. Yeah, and the <laughs> and of course the real high society is being kept in the dark because uh, all the reporters keep going missing for some reason. <laughs> and who will report on all their soirees? Exactly. So they have no clue what's going on with a you know a Spanish count in town. No, nothing. So, but uh, Blake ends up calming the dude down by suggesting they use their cadre of gangster associates and Missouri's dancers to play the appropriate roles. However, the police are slowly linking the disappearance of the reporters with the dude, and the gangsters are having a hard time rehearsing their characters. You're going to be reminded when we watch 42nd Street of uh, of the of this scene of them rehearsing because. The way uh, um, the dude goes about directing is so much like the director in 42nd Street trying to get all the dancers to work together. And uh, you can tell that uh, Capra's love of the theatrics and directing kind of sneaks into dude's character here. Yeah, it's also just fantastic to watch this hardened gangster type, or at least we're supposed to believe that he's a hardened gangster. We see very little hard gangster <laughs> No, but but this person who is organizing the uh, the kidnapping of several reporters is now trying to run basically a, a acting company. Exactly. Uh, maybe uh, maybe this will be a turning point for him in his career. We don't know. Right before it's time for the whole party to leave for the Maybury, uh, the dude discovers the police are just outside, infuriated and not knowing what to do. He calls Blake and then decides to confront the inspector, played by Robert Emmett O'Connor, at the police station. And Robert Emmett O'Connor, I never knew his name until I had to, you know, write up the summary for this. He was just the go-to guy to play the kind of cop in a comedy. Uh, He played the inspector in Night at the Opera, actually, who's part of the whole uh, scene in the, uh, when they're in the hotel and constantly switching rooms. So he looks the part and he acts the part pretty darn perfectly. Yeah, that's where I saw him before. He looked very familiar, and I think we might have seen him in another movie or will see him in another movie. I'm wondering if he played the investigator in Big House. I'll have to look that up. I think I think that might be it. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, at any rate, they are they're kind of stuck. Uh, they're they're in a bit of a pickle here because they've been rehearsing in one area and they have to go and arrive and be introduced to, uh, you know, in this reception. Despite not being terribly well prepared, they've been practicing all day and some of the gangsters who are playing high society people have started to get drunk. Um, they each have different roles, which I thought was hilarious because they start arguing over who gets to be what rank yeah, of, yeah. of person. So, you know, if if so and so gets to be an ambassador, then I should be king. And uh, you see another gangster walking around uh, flipping a coin with people just to get their role and work his way up that way. And it's a it's a it's a pretty good little comedic setup. So they're they're all going to be stymied if they can't leave and go anywhere with the with the cops hanging around outside. So the then we we have the confrontation with the inspector and the inspector has had a lot of pressure put on him by the mayor, by the governor who's putting pressure on the mayor and, and everyone's putting pressure on everyone else to find these missing reporters because of course the newspapers are being uh, rather irate about uh, their missing reporters and the police not being able to really do much of anything. The confrontation at the police department uh, does not go well, even though the dude promises to return the reporters after he's done with the reception inspector instead takes him down to the governor's house and the governor is played by Hobart uh, Bosworth, who is having a party of his own with the mayor and other high f- officials. So, foreshadowing. You don't know it yet, audience, but that's foreshadowing. Having a party of his own. Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, the it's kind of funny. The, the inspector wants to interrupt this whole party just to show off that he's he's. He's captured the the guy who's admitted that he has the reporters. He doesn't have the reporters in hand yet. Oh. It's like halfway there. Isn't that credit enough? Yeah, so but he is desperate to not lose his job. No. Um but uh yeah, that's uh that's where this thing is really coming to a head is is at this big fancy party that is happening and in contrast you see a big fancy party not happening at uh, back at the the suite, and it's uh, it's pretty funny. There's one little bit where they're just kind of waiting for people to arrive, and the uh, the count kind of with with the ultimate ace off his sleeve says like, "Well, we're expecting a dowry to to solidify this marriage, judge." And uh, the judge slowly kind of like prevaricates and uh, tries to at first say like, oh, well, we'll pay for everything for them to get set up. And uh, that makes the count feel like, you know, oh, well, you know, I should pay my half. And then they go back and forth a little bit. And after a while, it's revealed that the count enjoys uh, billiards. And this, of course, is what the judge does all day, every day. Mm. So they they challenge each other to a game of pool. And um, that's how the judge is just kind of a side note. It's it. It barely comes up. It's 
you know, this point of tension that you're you're on your seat and you're just, oh, no, they finally been found out. And uh, it gets diffused by just like a comic little display of uh, the judge completely uh, walloping the the count, who is also very good at pool um, in this little interlude there. But we we soon return to the sad truth that uh, there is no big party going on. There's no reception. You know, little filler moments, but one that does take care of a good plot point with like, oh, what are they going to do about the dowry? So, ooh, good thing a judge. So, meanwhile, Annie overhears Blake's phone call with the dude and surmises the police are on their way. Heartbroken and in despair, she realizes that it's time to tell Louise and her prospective husband and father-in-law the truth. Just as she's about to reveal all, the dude arrives with the mayor's entire party in tow. They pretend to know Annie and Blake as Mr. and Mrs. E. Worthington Manville, having been moved by the dude's story. They also decide to drop all charges against the dude. Whoopie dink. Yeah, Uh, much much the chagrin of the actual reporters who got kidnapped. (laughs) The reporter's like, they kept us chained for weeks. Ah, forget about it. Oh, yeah. Like their editors are also on. And that is really stretching, uh, you know, the suspension of disbelief there that a (laughs) reporter would not report on getting kidnapped. And also that there is this heartfelt story behind it all. Yeah. Again, just just go with it. Roll with it, Jason. Just roll with it. So the governor provides a police escort to take Louise, Carlos and the count to their waiting ship. Annie waves a tearful goodbye to her daughter as she sails away. And I was expecting to find out that like the governor was also going to give her a lot of money or something so that Annie could live comfortably for the rest of her years. But nope, we end on her waving goodbye to Louise and we do not know what happens next. I assume that uh, Louise just never sees her mother again and everything's that's that. I don't know. And Annie just goes back to a life of poverty. Hooray! Yeah, but that's that's not the point. Mission mission accomplished. You know, the marriage is going to happen. The, Car- Carlos is stuck. Going to happen, and that was that was her fondest dream, Annie's. So happy endings all around. Thank you, Capricorn. <laughs> yeah. So that is the plot of our movie. Um, let's uh, start rating it. I think. So our first category for rating will be uh, acting. How well do you think this was acted? I I thought it was pretty good. Perfect for me. Everyone from the littlest character, the the British doorman to like Ned Sparks, like like uh, uh, kind of verbal sparring with the butler. Everyone was so on top of their game. I mean, uh um, you know, Warren William is unfortunately kind of a forgotten star, but this was at the height of his fame. Uh, he was a very popular actor around this time. And you can see why he really makes dude likable. Mm-hmm. And I, I will watch Ned Sparks in anything. And uh, Mae Robson, I I think I'd seen her in uh, like the original Star is Born. She's fantastic. So perfect 10 for me. Perfect 10. And I am going to match your perfect 10. There's nothing that I could really a point to in terms of acting that stood out as bad. Um, and they really made these characters come alive and really built in a lot of nuance to their characters, which you 
wouldn't necessarily get from a plot this goofy. Um, it would have been it would have been yeah. very easy to just kind of have them be very cookie cutter types, but every every character had you, you felt like they had a life beyond just what's happening on screen. Yeah, everyone felt very fully fleshed out. And uh I think I mean even uh like Louise we don't even see much of, but Gene Parker makes her very likable. I mean, I'd say Barry Norton is kind of stiff. Maybe he's the weakest link as uh, as her fiance, but I mean, he's just kind of a non-entity and we don't need to worry about him. Yeah, Louise and Carlos exist just to be in love with each other. Um, yeah. And they do convince you of that sappy truth very well by just constantly making out. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely a uh, very pre-code of them. The, the amount of makeouts that are happening. I know this is still technically pre-code as was the uh, implication. Well, no, she straight out says she was never married. And he says, so Kate couldn't get away with that a year later. Oh man, we're, we're closing in on the code and it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting change (laughs) (laughs) now. So after a perfect round on acting, we hit the writing category. Uh oh. Oh man. It's tough because the dialogue is top notch, but those plot holes, I think I'll just be kind to it because, you know, the dialogue is so good. The the plot holes really don't deter from the movie. So I'll I'll be kind and give it a a seven. Oh wow, a seven. I I'm going to give it a bit of a uh bit of a hit here i'm going to give it a hmm i'm gonna go all the way down to five um just because it it is kind of ludicrous how many holes there are it's true it's true Uh, and if it weren't so well acted it would have really stuck out yeah Um, it would be ridiculous to be believed it's uh and it's just a feel good movie. And that's why you kind of hand wave a lot of these holes away. The. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm also docking points for one scene that we didn't really bring up, but there is a short scene where uh, the dude, unfortunately, imitates a Japanese person over the phone to kind of throw off the uh, the count who's calling his consulate just to figure out, like, what what is the deal with all these people? And he says, like, oh, he's not home and you can't talk to me because I'm Japanese and I won't understand English very well. Um, that, was scene. that was also uh, uh, the scene where uh, they're, all the hair and makeup people are going to uh, work on Annie. And a guy starts to go in and, and uh, the dude's like, hey, he can't go in there. And Missouri's like, oh, yes, he can. And, you know, he does a little movement that's like, oh, he's gay. That's why. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a little... Uh, uh, dated and aged poorly those scenes that's true that's a good point right um but you know it's uh it's no traitor horn it's no it it, it's not even shanghai express uh it uh still wrong and all the plot holes i'm giving it a five see how standards lower thanks to movies like that yeah, exactly. It's um, 
actually, I mean, I feel like you would see movies and scenes like that uh, well into the 80s and 90s, but uh, that's not good back then either. Uh Uh-uh. Nope. Nope. Should have done better. Okay, so our next category is the cinematography. I feel like it did a great job. You're going to give it a 10? Yeah, I think the shots are beautiful. Um, Even from the get-go of the streets, uh, just really great crowd scenes. And one shot that really sticks in my mind, which, you know, might be a little corny, but really works, is a little love scene between Louise and Carlos uh, in the garden of the hotel. And they're sitting in front of like a little... uh, waterfall fixture and he uh, films it through the waterfall and uh that was a very kind of gauzy romantic effect i thought oh yeah yeah that was capra knew how to make movies he knew how to make a uh good framed pictures yeah i'm gonna give it a nine um just uh i thought it was great i thought that the scenes like you said were just like framed well the crowd scenes were especially well done um you you had some pretty interesting shots uh the whole rehearsing scene with uh with the high camera looking down on this crowd of buffoons bowing to each other practicing their bow uh was great um yeah uh only reason for for no full ten is that it's not um it's not citizen kane um pretty much <laughs> try trying to reserve the the full ten a little bit all right our last major category is overall how well do the acting writing and cinematography come together for an overall product um I'm gonna say it does pretty well um my personal opinion is a nine. How about you? I go eight. Eight? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, yeah, my reasoning is pretty much all the things that we've said. It um the r- ludicrous writing and story, you just want to excuse it because it's uh it's a nice feel-good story. You don't want to get held down in the details. It doesn't take itself terribly seriously. Um, you, you, it's here to have a good time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we're going to go into the bonus rounds. And going into the bonus rounds, it has a 58, um, which is a pretty decent score. Pretty decent score going into those rounds. It puts it on par with about, um, looking back here, um, Aerosmith was one below it. And obviously, like, that big hit was in the writing category. Everything else was, you know, 8 through 10. And our first, uh, our first chance for bonus points now is going to be costumes and set. Yeah, I think that they did a really good job. It was a contemporary piece and they they made everything look um like when they make up uh Apple Annie when she is Apple Annie, she is uh you know, believable as this frazzled uh person living in poverty, but you know, still making a living and everything like that. Uh she 
isn't like ludicrously over the top in in how like bedraggled like she didn't put like mud on her face or anything like that she's just you know she doesn't have a professional hairstylist and um and fancy clothes so i feel like she's believable as a lower class person and then they make this transformation of her into this uh, genteel lady and that's believable as well she's not like sparkly or anything like that she's just well dressed and the judge is always uh, well dressed and wears a tuxedo well i thought uh, the the gangsters look like 1930s gangsters but not in a weird um artificial looking way i thought i just thought the costumes were great and the suite was a a nice laid out um fancy suite what do you think i'm gonna give it a four for all the reasons you mentioned one point taken off because missouri martin's first dress she wears is ridiculous it looks very (laughs) it has this weird black fanny pack type thing on it and i'm just like what is that that's so ugly so that's the only reason i'm taking a point off for costumes it otherwise it is a beautiful looking movie on top of everything else all right i'm gonna give it a five you give it a four next up we have a chance for bonus points for its boldness uh this is a point which i don't think it does terribly well it is not a very bold movie in fact it's boldly going in the opposite direction of just wanting you to feel good. Agree with you slightly because I think um making the gangsters so likable. I mean it's very unrealistic, but I think it was an unusual choice uh at the time since, you know, most gangster movies of the time were, you know, dark and had the moral of don't be a gangster because, you know, it will end in all this gunfire. Whereas here they're just, you know, Fine and dandy folks. Yeah, they're fun guys. Uh, now, the fact that, you know, it's explicitly said that uh, Annie was not married when she had uh, Louise. So I'm going to give it, I mean, you're right. That's not the boldest movie. So I'll give it, I'll give it just, I'll give it a four, which is still pretty high. Yeah, still pretty high. I, I take your points. Um, I guess it does make some, some stuff that, uh, some points that aren't going to pass in a year or two with the code. So I am going to still score it not too, not too well. I'm not going to give it too many bonus points on this one, Um, but I am going to give it two because of the unmarried mother situation and the, the gangsters being the heroes. (laughs) Um, But uh, I'm going to give it two points for that. So up next, we have the category legacy. I'm going to say that it has a great legacy because, like I said, the entire cast goes on to make movies that we are going to watch in this podcast. And I think it helped further along Frank Capra's career. And in a few short years, he, I think, finally will win that Best Director Oscar for It Happened One Night. Plus, he did actually his very last movie in 1961 was a remake of this movie called a uh, pocket full of miracles. And it starred Betty Davis in the Apple Annie role. Oh, really? Um, um, I looked up the trailer and it does not look nearly as good as lady for a day, but I'd say that does speak to its legacy. So I'll give it a five. Yes. I'm going to give it a five as well. Um, just the amount of acting talent and Capra, 
coming to the forefront here is uh, is worth noticing and it does impact cinema going forward. Our next chance for bonus points is longevity. How well does this movie stand up over time? Um, it depends on how stressful the era that you're living in is. <laughs> I feel feel good movie. Yeah, it is very much a feel good movie. And I feel like if we were to watch this in the cynical 90s where everything was going, 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 and we had a good economy and everything like that, it would maybe feel hokey. Um, but in the depression, I feel like it it was made for the era that it was in. That said, I do think that it's a very likable movie. It's hard to dislike. There is the the racist scene, which uh, is thankfully short, at least. But that doesn't stand up over time, obviously. Um, I think I'm going to give it a. I think I'm going to give it a three. Three bonus points. Taking the two points off solely for, yeah, the little racist bit. Okay. So, uh, our last chance for bonus points is the technical category. Um, not a special effects movie, but I do think that, um, things like getting that clear shot through the waterfall was probably a technical challenge for sure. Uh, setting up the the high angle um, shots of the whole crowds and things like that, that had to be a technical challenge. Um, so for those reasons, I'm, I'm going to give it another three. A lot of it kind of ties into the cinematography, but um, because of that, what was that? I'm going to match your three because of that. Yep. Okay. And that gives us a final total of 95, which. Oh, good job, Lady for a Day. Yeah, good job, Lady for a Day. Um, that puts it a little bit behind Little Women, which we covered last week. Um, let's see. And a little bit behind She Done Him Wrong. I, yeah, around the same league as the champ and bad girl. So not bad, not bad at all. It's a, it's definitely a feel good movie. It's not the type of movie that I would have expected to enjoy as much as I did. Um, but yeah, depression era fantasy is, is not like one of my genres, but, uh, this one is done well enough that it, it works. And I like, I liked the characters. <laughs> they were great. Prized, it actually trailed below the movies behind the movies you mentioned because, like I said, I do think Capra. You know, whether you think his material is overly sappy or not, he had this magic touch that just made his movies seem just more vibrant and more together than other movies uh, of that time. And I think if it weren't for you know the plot holes we mentioned, uh, the little dose of racism. And a few of the other problems we mentioned, this would grade even higher. Uh, it was very, very well-made movie. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, we great movie with some problems that, we, that we've discussed here. 
Uh, so our last question, of course, is whether we are going to nominate this picture for the prestigious Notsker Award, a movie award podcast movie award for movies. And I am going to say I will nominate it. How about I you? I nominate it too, with pride. <laughs> it's um it's very of its era, but I feel like with pandemic times and everything like that, it's kind of our era too. We need something soothing and and popcorny and something that is just nice with with nice gangsters and um and uh a happy ending that doesn't really go too far into much a- into the aftermath of living a lie. <laughs> Beautifully put. And I agree entirely. I highly recommend this to, uh, to basically everyone. I mean, uh, you know, beware the pitfalls of the racism and don't think too hard about the plot holes and you're going to have a very fun time. All right. That's our episode for today. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Comeback a Star. You can uh, find us on the Facebook. If you just, you know, go into the little search function and type in Come Back a Star, we should come up. Uh, you can email us with uh, your helpful uh, tips and advice and, uh, and blowback uh, <laughs> for all our terrible decisions at uh, comebackastarpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we, we do occasionally get some, some email and it's, uh, never been bad. So, so that's good. That's good. Um, we do really appreciate you guys engaging and uh, listening to us. If you have enjoyed this, uh, this listen, um, why don't you share this podcast with your friends? We do not have a publicity budget and, uh, we depend on people sharing this podcast with other people. Everyone knows that movie person in in their life. And um, even if the 1930s is not your era, we promise that we will get to to uh, to the 70s eventually. I think that was beautiful, man, a beautiful pitch. <laughs> All right. Um, so I think that's it. For me, I'm going to turn off this projector and draw the curtains and bid you all uh, goodbye and um, don't live a lie. Apple Annie story was a fiction. This is fantasy and fiction. It's not real life. This would all probably land you in jail. Absolutely, it would, especially the kidnapping people. Don't do that. Yeah, don't kidnap people, even if you think it's fun. All right, everyone. You have a good one. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye, everybody.